The impression is, the, percep- the perception that those headlines create is that you'll start a business and then six months later you'll sell that business for $100 million, you'll move to the south of France on your $50 million super yacht and you'll be doing Bolivian cocaine with a bunch of Russian supermodels. <laughs> What's up hustlers? Welcome to the Matt Brown Show. Much in the world of entrepreneurship is relative. For example, when you are a startup and a solopreneur, you'll most likely have cash flow problems and you'll battle to pay yourself a salary at some point. Then you have Robbie Brosen, the founder of Nando's, who had 38 stores across the country and couldn't pay his staff. You see, it's all relative. Let's take Silicon Valley, for example. There are so many headlines about startups raising hundreds of millions of dollars from venture capitalists, and it's easy to think that you'll raise the same kind of money from VCs in Africa. But in reality, you won't. But the one thing that isn't relative is that entrepreneurship is very much about pain. And regardless of whether you are a startup, Robbie Rosen, a startup in Silicon Valley who's just been funded for tens of millions of dollars, or just an ordinary entrepreneur trying to make a living, we all have to push through the challenges that lie before us as we look to achieve personal and business success. You know, whatever success might mean to you, it is stories like Tim Olson's, the CEO of Aldo Energy, that gives us the perspective and inspiration we need to go out there and make it rain. So without further ado, enter Tim Olson. This one is going to be awesome because we are going to adventure into probably one of the most exciting technology spaces uh, at the moment, and that's blockchain. More specifically, I'm more excited actually about the guest that we have on the show today. He's been courting me for some time now. I've been trying to get his money. <laughs> but his name is none other than Tim Olson. Tim, welcome to the show, buddy. Ooh. Welcome, bro. Good to see you, Matt. Likewise, dude. I need Jeez. to get used to this mic thing. I know, I know. Fuck, welcome, bro. So look, um, Welcome. It's been a while, here. Yeah, I was just saying, I was driving past your house so many times, now I know where you are. <laughs> uh, speaking of driving, uh, we have to get the elephants out the room because I told the guys what car you drive, um, and Bradley literally got a hard on straight away. <laughs> <laughs> so please walk me through your process. You're 31 years old, the tender age of 31, right? I was still um, gallivanting on super yachts and traveling the world. What a tough life that must have been. I know, I know. Um, so it was actually hard work, Brie, I must say, but super, super awesome and so forth. But 31 years old, I, didn't ex- I wasn't exactly driving a McLaren. But walk me through the process. Like why the fucking on earth did you buy a McLaren? The 458, come on, dude. <laughs> hey? I didn't want to do what everyone else does, and I just love engineering. So anything that was like slightly different, there we go. Anything that was slightly different, love technology, and that kind of like ticked all the boxes for me. So it was a very easy choice. Yeah, well, I, I would love to go in your car one day. Tell us a little bit about Tim Olson, the man, the legend. Well, no one really knows who I am. And <laughs> this is actually true. I remember the first time we met each other, it was kind of like, um, you know, I don't have really, I'm not really on social media. I don't really do Twitter. You're very much flying under the radar, but you're doing some very, very big things. And I find that quite interesting as a dichotomy to explore. So why aren't you like this persona, you know, entrepreneur? When, by all, yeah. by all accounts, if you know Tim Olson, like I know you and your network knows you, like you know you, that guy. Mm. It's just ironic that you're not the digital footprint dude. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's actually one of the things that I and you and I spoke about this a couple of months ago. Things that I might want to change, but you know, if I think back for the last ten years, because I've been in business for ten years now, I've had various startups I've been involved in, and I've always liked the story of the underdog. And I think the the obviously social media as a platform has got immense amount of power for you to leverage and get your name out there and get your personal brand, your business out there. There's no denying that. But it's more around, you know, also keeping very quiet about what you do and how you do it in such a way that the bigger competition, especially in my space, which is incredibly competitive um, and very cash intensive, you know, like being the underdog, I think has served us well up until now. So cool, man. It's just a strategy that we decided to choose and we kind of followed through on. Yeah, nothing wrong with that, man. So let's talk about what you are doing. So what I find fascinating is that your big energy play, which is really interesting. So all the energies being your company. Yeah. Um, but before we dive into the specifics about what you're doing, which I find incredibly exciting um, as a opportunity for the average man in the street and woman in the street to get access to affordable energy, you know, God bless Telcom. Escom. <laughs> Escom, whatever. They're all the same for me, dude. You know what I mean? They're all broke. Um, but, uh, but let's go back to the beginning. Like, you obviously went to UCT and studied, um, something really fancy out there. Finance. Yeah. Finance and economics. <laughs> Finance and economics. But why energy? Worthless like, degree. <laughs> but why energy? Like, what, what made you get up one morning and go, you know, energy has a really big problem and I'm the guy to go out there and actually fix this for everyone. Like why and how did that come about? So I actually kind of stumbled into the opportunity. It was final year at Varsity 2008. Um, we just started getting load shedding and a lot of lectures were canceled, which was amazing at the time. Everyone was like, yes, you know, I hope ESCOM burns more to the ground. So I just, apply basic economic principles. If there isn't enough supply to meet the demand, like inevitably prices are going to go up. And this wasn't a short-term crunch. It was a fundamental shift in our peak demand profile in the entire country. And ESCOM was just struggling to meet the demand. So um, I was doing an entrepreneurship course in my honors year and we had to develop a business plan. I thought, like, what what business do you choose? And kind of it coincided with this idea that I had and I just thought, why not? Why not choose sort of energy efficiency, you know, how businesses can save on rising electricity costs and kind of like protect themselves and their bottom lines. And that ended up being a, a business plan I submitted. And then after I did it and I thought, maybe I shouldn't go the corporate route. Um, I wasn't doing a CA anyway, but I didn't really want to do accounting. So I thought, let me maybe start a business. Both my parents were entrepreneurs, so it wasn't that foreign to me. But um, yeah, I just kind of, kind of fell in from there. So you mentioned that you actually did a course in entrepreneurship. I mean, I have to ask you because I get asked this fucking question all the time, which is, are you born an entrepreneur or is it something that you can teach anyone? Like, what's your take on that? I think it's a bit of a, a bit of both. Um, I think one of the defining characteristics of an entrepreneur is that you just go to the nth degree. Like there's never a no, you always make a plan. And you know, that's a, that's a personality trait that you cannot teach. You can teach the basics, the fundamentals, but like if you don't have that intrinsically in you, you're just never going to go like that extra mile to, to do whatever you can. Yeah. You're not going to like sell your shirt off your back to make yeah, it basically. Exactly. You know what I mean? You'll quit when yeah. shit gets real, yeah, right? Exactly. Cool. So there you are. You're studying economics and so forth. And now you've got this energy idea. Like where do you go from, from there? Because for me, like I've obviously started quite a few companies, mm. some of which obviously failed and a couple mm. I sold, but like for me, energy is just such a 
big thing. Mm. It's like you don't get to play small in yeah. energy. Like yeah. if you're gonna go and mix with like with the big boys, yeah. like you got to hit hard yeah. and you got to hit fast. Mm. You know, you need massive amounts of capital. You need a scalable business model. Mm. Somehow it needs to be completely different. The underlying yeah. business model, yeah. right? It must yeah. make sense uh, no, to make this thing truly disruptive, mm. right? So. I mean, where did you go from there? Like you, you didn't have a rep, you didn't yeah. have staff, you didn't have capital. Like walk us through the steps that you took to kind of get to where you are today. So you got to bear in mind, this was like 10 years ago, right? So technology 10 years ago is also very, very different, um, especially around software and which is really what the core of the business is now. But, um, you know, back then, the first thing I actually did when I, when I thought this was a great idea is I tried to get a meeting with one of the major guys at ESCOM. And like, that was a bit of a process. It took me about two months, but my, my, my first, my first meeting I ever had for that, the business concept was actually with one of the, the major di- uh, managers at ESCOM. I flew up to Joburg for the day and I was like, put on my suit and I pitched him on this idea. And he actually thought it was actually great. He says like, this is exactly what the, you know, we're looking for. We're looking at how can we ironically tell our customers to save energy so that we make less money. Um, but you know, there are lots of industrial users, lots of commercial users. And yeah, from there basically validated my idea. Um, and then it just, it was a sequence of speaking to suppliers because I was still very much, you know, it wasn't around the consulting really. It was more about technology. So what light bulbs can I source? What equipment can I, um, import from overseas to try and help these customers save money. And we always had a very agnostic approach. So it wasn't like I had to sell this specific light bulb. It was more like we have a couple of suppliers. We'll work with them. We'll get the technology and we'll install them, maintain them. And the customer gets the benefit of the savings. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of just really happened organically from there. Just once you get a bit of confidence and you start pitching to customers and you start picking up the phone and cold calling and being rejected a few times, you know, like you, you just pick yourself up and you just go from there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. But walk me through like as if I was five years old. Like Mm. what were you trying to do? Were you just trying to like basically enable the delivery or an access to electricity cheaper than anybody else? Was that pretty much the premise or? So energy as a a sector and utilities as a sector is, is extremely broad. So you've got everything from like generation, which is access to electricity, uh, renewable um, solar PV, whether it's for household or business or even utility grade, which are like those large massive plants in North Northern Cape. Then you have the network side, which is how that power and utilities get distributed. And then you've got the customer. So those are the, the, the three fundamental pillars in what the value chain represents. Now, my journey in the last 10 years literally is kind of like evolved from the one to the next to the next. And then we kind of took a step back and we said, cool, like this is the perspective that we now have. How do we leverage this? And this takes us more into what the business does now. But 
back then it was more around ESCOM is going to increase prices. And you know, back then the increases were 25, 30% a year. So the, 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 the sheer media coverage and the, the, the actual pressure that ESCOM was going to put on local businesses was huge. Suddenly you've got this utility line item electricity cost that's going to rise 30% next year and then another 30%. And that kind of compounds forward. So, you know, kind of like that was the big driver. It was like, how can businesses save? Knowing that ESCOM is going to increase prices, what technology can they install to actually save money? And that's effectively, that was the initial starting point of the business. So it was an idea though, right? It was an idea. It was a complete idea. Yeah. So how did you go about, I want to get in fund, into funding in a second because there's a big massive thing that you're doing at the moment. But um, like perception is obviously quite important, right? Yeah. And as an energy player, you can't exactly walk into a boardroom acting like a startup, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially you when you're dealing yeah, yeah, with ESCOM, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? So, so like how did you go about building your street cred? Like what were the steps that you took there? So I think it was a combination of just a good good balance of know-how. So obviously I had to have depth and I would often pitch to engineers and engineers really get deep and I'm not an engineer, but I needed to understand the technology. So really got into like a lot of the electrical engineering fundamentals, but it, it was also perception. Like when you pull up a PowerPoint, you're meeting, you know, a couple of directors or engineers at a company, you're pitching them a solution of how they can save money and they go, cool, tell us how, how can I save? I mean, for you to sell savings is like a no-brainer. It's actually one of the other ironies in, in the whole industry. But um, once you start pitching and you get more comfortable and, you know, you kind of give the, the, the audience a sense that you know what you're talking about, it kind of like that was for me my first bit of cred. Like immediately on the surface, people got to know that, okay, Tim and the guys, they know what they're talking about. So you were basically speaking their language, right? Yes. So even though... It, you know, I suppose from a practical application perspective, you were nowhere near the yeah. perception you were actually, you know. Exactly. But, uh, but it was one speaking their own language. What, do yeah. you, what else did you do? Look, it's, it's, it's always hard in that sector to get that first customer, to get that first big blue chip that kind of becomes your anchor. And we just happened to fall into a couple of good opportunities because timing was right, our messaging was right, and it kind of gave us a lot of momentum. So we would leverage like good customer case studies, good customer profiles to try and get us into the next next project. So and that just comes down to sales. Like, and you know, it, it, there isn't necessarily an art. Like, I don't think you can close every single deal. Um, but you just have to also get the timing right. You need to deal with hopefully the right person on the other end of the table who actually is willing and able to make a commitment. I mean, we've had projects where customers would take 18 months to put pen to paper and they didn't have to pay anything because everything was funded through rebates. So you kind of look at yourself and go, really? I'm, I'm not selling you snake, uh, snake oil. I'm, I'm actually selling you something that's going to save you money and you don't have to pay for it. But why is it taking you 18 months? So not every deal is a guaranteed deal, but um, obviously getting those critical ones to build your base and then taking those and leveraging those to the next level. And then I think actually fundamentally it's more being hungry enough to go to that next level because you can always remain at this like, I'm just going to give a, a figure, a million rand deal, and then you can you can be quite comfortable. And that's all you do. But and when you, how do you go from a million rand to five million rand, five million to ten million? So that kind of builds up over time. How, so is it just a case of um – accretion which is what eric kruger preaches i'm sure you know him and uh basically accretion for those of you who don't know is basically the process of kind of like compounded interest but in this con in the context of entrepreneurship it's about doing the small things every day that add up to bigger and bigger deals right? 100%, yeah so you're saying that was pretty much your approach yeah. right it was very much a okay we did seven figures now we're going to do you know the next 
bigger deal in the next one after that, right? Okay, so um, so I'm going to talk more around hunger in a second, but before we do that, mm. I want to just dive into a quote of the day because I think it's relevant here. Okay, cool, let's do this. <laughs> Our quote of the day is, Tim, off to you, Brad. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. Cool, so how have you applied this in your own business? For me, success is like a, it's a, it's an evolution. I don't think there's actually an end point. And you also, as you mature as an entrepreneur, you kind of validate what success is in your own mind. Um, you know, many people have an idea what success means, but personal life, family, business, traction, all of those things are also quite, quite important. Um, every business has, has failures. I've had customers literally drop out with signed contracts and you go back to ground zero. I've had, projects just like disappear from underneath us and you know there's there's nothing that you can really do there's certain things that are out of your control but what you realize once you fall a couple of times that you can only fall so far you can only like you can see i can see the ground here i know that that's as far as i'm going to fall so as long as i pick myself up you know that there is another opportunity so i think people kind of have this perception that when you fail like that's it you kind of like you you've written it's game over in fact it's just you just have to look at it from another perspective and say, cool, if I pick myself up, this is the lesson I've actually learned and how can I then you know, apply that going forward? And in my business, I've had many, many of those instances over the last 10 years. I mean, it's just the, the list is countless. But It's funny though because you learn that lesson at different times and I think yeah. as long as you learn it at some point, it doesn't yeah. really matter when. Look, I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah, well, when are we not? Yeah, dude? exactly. Let's be honest. It's, it's like, right? and, you know, look at even guys like Elon Musk, you know, like yeah. one of the most established businesses in the world, like poster child of trying to change, you know, what, what our generation is going to potentially remember as being like leapfrog moments. But look at all, all the, the hype and the, the bad press around what's going on there at the moment. So, yeah. do you know, it doesn't matter how big or how small you are, it's all relative. Mm. Uh, and you always have setbacks and, and letdowns. It's funny because just yesterday, last night, a friend of mine posted on Facebook, I won't mention her name, but basically she was like, I, I finally, at 39 years old, I've finally gotten over my fear of failure. Mm. You know what I mean? And I was <laughs> like, I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're 31, like mm. some people learn it when they're 12. Mm. Do you know no, what I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, but it's funny though, because people seem to think that's, that you, like I said, I say some people, right, out there, and it's a mm. ridiculous mindset to, to have, I suppose. But you think that successful people haven't failed. Yeah. Like they no, somehow manage to jump and avoid all the, the minefields on yeah. their way to success. It, it doesn't happen. No, like it, it do, and in fact, everyone fails. And that's exactly the point. It's like they fail. And the reason why they are where they are is because they always continued. Yeah. And that's actually the last line. It's the courage to actually go ahead and push on and navigate through the next chapter. I mean, it's, that's just part of the, part of the journey. Yeah. I mean, what's been your biggest failure to date? I mean, does, and it's a hard one. It's a hard one, right? When it's just, you know, it's all molds into one for me sometimes. <laughs> but if you were to pick one, mm -hmm. like, what was it? What was that failure? Um, and what did you learn about yourself in that process? Sure. That is a, that is a tough one. I'm trying, trying to be diplomatic. Um, don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my first, business effectively got absorbed into another business um, and it grew fairly well for the first two and a half years and then we kind of had a couple of setbacks again most of my setbacks in the business have been due to customers not paying or contracts falling away especially if you don't have cash if you don't sit, if you're not seeing on investment money it's very difficult to grow your business um, with enough of a 
enough of a lifeline. So you live, you live your business in like quarterly intervals instead of like, I'm, this is my budget for the year. I know I'm going to be safe. So as a result of that, um, small setback, basically, um, we got effectively asked to leave that business by the majority shareholder absorbed us into their company. And within the space of two weeks, basically, I had, I had no, no business anymore. I had no clients. I had no staff. And if, 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 if I, if I think back about like that time, and it's actually so, so funny because obviously like hindsight is always 2020. But if I think about that time, like the biggest lesson for me was like, I really fucked this one up. Like, you know, like what could I have done better? What, what we could have recruited more customers. I could have been less blase because we kind of got a bit displaced and we was, I was still very young at that time. How old were you, by the way? I was 25. So this is a company you built and then someone acquired you? Or yeah, it was, you? it was basically a merger. It was a basically alignment of visions and a merger. Are you feeling lonely on your entrepreneurial journey? Well, it doesn't need to be that way. Check out the Daily Hustle Telegram group powered by the Matt Brown Show and connect with other hustlers from around the world. Yeah. So, and then, but it all fell apart, right? It so all fell apart. That sucks, dude. Yeah. Was it because you, you didn't follow like legal advice? Was it the case that you, but I don't know, most youngsters are arrogant like yeah, I was? So, so I think I was a bit naive. Um, you know, he was the majority shareholder, so he had the, the purse strings. And the voting rights, I suppose. Exactly. And, you know, and to this day, I've, I've still met him many times. And, you know, I actually, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me, not only from, from a lesson perspective, but also in terms of changing my, my whole outlook in terms of what I want to do in terms of my career. So, um, it was, it was a, it was a great stepping stone for where I'm today. I'm very grateful. And like I said, the relationship is still very, very good. But I, I think it really came down to us being a bit too naive, not having the right legal grounds. And he did, he would, he did what probably any other well-established businessman would have done. Just like say, cool, I put in money. The client has pulled out. I need to recapitalize. I'm going to dilute you guys down to X value. That X value just wasn't attractive for us anymore. And, you know, like hard decisions had to be made. It just was done in a very, very short space of time. Um, but I think, like I said, great lesson. And, um, it kind of taught me some good fundamentals that I used for the, for the current business I have. Yeah. I'm sure there's lessons yeah. you'll take forward into the next yeah. one, right? But, I mean, how did you pick yourself up? I'm fascinated by this because, I mean, I've, Joey Evans, for instance, I mean, that, I don't know if you've listened to that show, basically you were told you'd never walk again and 10 years later you finished the Dakar rally. Like, I love that shit where people, where you basically are, to use, um, you know, Rocky's expression, like yeah. hit hard down to yeah. the canvas, yeah. Yeah. whether that's in your situation or in my situation when I was literally mm. lost my shirt through a failed mm. business. Yeah. You know, you financially and spiritually broken, like when you really are fucked, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, and you don't want to get out of bed, mm. like that's a very real thing for a lot mm. of guys, you know, and for a lot of girls out there too. Mm. Um, so what did you do to pick yourself up? Like, how did you then regroup and go, okay, cool, I'm not broken, I'm not going to be the victim, and I'm going to like come out the other side stronger? Like, what did you do? To be honest, I think that, that really comes down to personality, um, because if you have a setback, it just depends on how you interpret that, that setback and like how you intrinsically drive yourself to try and get out of that hole. And for me, it was just like a knee jerk reaction. It was like, cool, this happened. Shit. Like, yes, you know, that, that first week was like, fuck, what am I going to do? Can't touch customers. Like, so any relationship I established, you know, I can't go to them. How do I start another business in the same space, but have no springboard? No salary, no network, no, network, <laughs> no savings, just yeah. like, you know, ground zero. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I just, I got up and I started cold calling really. I, and I, I remember I was living um, at a, in a complex and there was a shopping center next door. And I thought, let me just walk across. Cause at the time I also didn't have a car. I mean, this is kind of like, <laughs> did you lose your car also? What, what I didn't, happened? I didn't have a car. Okay, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't actually end up having a car cause I just, I wasn't making enough money. I mean, as an entrepreneur, and this was before Uber, Uber would have changed my life back then. <laughs> um, I had to, I had to rent an Avis car to get some of my meetings. So anyway, I remember literally, <laughs> I, I remember literally walking to the shopping center next door and it, it wasn't even a block away. And I just went there and I just like walked around, had a look at their lights and I had a look at like the metering. I, I just went to the, off, uh, to the, to the, um, to the shopping center manager and I said, look, I've just had a look around. I spent about half an hour here. I think there's some stuff that you can do. Are you interested? And he said, I didn't show me. So I walked around with him. He says, cool, give me a proposal. I'll put you in touch with the boss. And then I got in touch with the boss. And then, you know, that was like my, my first big one or big relative, but that was a bit of a, a starting point. And then I just started going to, bigger corporates again from scratch just guys I hadn't approached before I specifically so maybe this is also one of my, my stronger lessons from the first business was I specifically started um, leveraging and valuing partnerships more so I basically started recruiting a lot of good big partners so like when the perception of who is Tim who's my business you know who's behind you I could then say look these are our partners and the partners because they like the approach and they weren't really in the space actually were very keen on that kind of idea so that, that I think also really worked well and kind of gave me confidence because you know if a big listed JSE company says cool we are in, in health and safety but you know we, we can introduce to our customers if you just tell us what you do and how you do it and we can leverage it like, sure we can do it so that, that that just happened organically, really. How do you protect the downsides in partnerships? Because oh, this is a good topic. <laughs> yeah, it's a very fucking good one. Partnerships are an interesting one for me because I've I've gone down that road. I think you can get scale really quickly. Absolutely, yeah. Partnerships. Absolutely. And I think agree. if you're a if you have a really good dog man, you know how to structure a partnership contractually. Very important. But I think prior to even getting there, it's to understand the motivations of the partner that you're yeah. getting in bed with. Yeah. Because for me, and you can just please feel free if you don't agree and don't share my views, but a partnership is pretty much the same as having a business partner, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just that, you know, you're not an equity owner or whatever the case is or have, you know, somewhere yeah. to draw dividends out on a potential yeah. shareholding. Just kill the, the volume there, bud. The ringer. Yeah. Um, so partnerships, they're such a minefield, dude. And like with you, it's, I, I, like, I've, I've just done a partnership now with the bank here, right? For content. And, um, but for you, it's like chalk and cheese. Like for me, my seven figures is like, okay, it's quite a big deal. But for you, you're doing like hundreds of millions in deal flow in any given. I mean, our God knows what your cash flow situation must be like when you're dealing with government and parastatals and stuff and your float and how much you have to carry. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that number's got to be like hundreds of millions a month, right? So like, let's start at the beginning. Someone wants to get in bed with the potential partner. What are the first things that need to look at? Just what are the strengths of the relationship? So what do they offer? What do you offer? What can they bring to the partner that you do not have and you need to leverage? I mean, often as an entrepreneur, you are the underdog. And this is where, you know, like in my case, I leverage a partnership to get me to that next level. So the partner couldn't have been someone who was smaller than me. The partner was always someone who could provide me more value than I could provide them in theory. If, however, they, they're also not in the space, like what you're doing with the content in the bank now, you know, there's a value proposition there. So as long as you're providing real value, you are then able to leverage that partnership effectively. But it's got to have good commercial grounds to 
stipulate scope of work on your side, scope and work on, on their side, and then just make sure it's aligned. Okay. But also, not every partnership works. I mean, I've had many that didn't work, but you know, the, the credibility definitely was was useful. So, okay, so it's about stacking your value, I suppose, in that partnership, right? Yeah. Because I suppose the partner getting in bed with you as the entrepreneur, you somehow need to, I suppose, structure the value so that the partner, whether they're licensing content or whether they're getting in bed or opening up their network with you, feels like they're the ones that are going to win, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's especially lucrative if it's a domain that they don't understand, they like, it kind of aligns with their core business and they can see value for them. Either it's through brand recognition or through additional revenue streams or through um, just diversified um, service offering. You know, like all those things are typically factors that, that you can leverage. Okay. What are the, some of the watch outs for? So in partnerships. In partnerships, yeah. So I've got a basically here, here I'll give you some more context. So with this bank, we had a 27 page sponsorship agreement, right? Essentially where the, we retain IP and the bank licenses it and da 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 and et cetera, et cetera. So, so then the bank was like, look, um, we not comfortable signing a 27 page document. We want to move on this project ASAP. So can you give us an executive summary? So what does that put me in? puts me in a bit of a blind spot, yeah, right? Because how do you remove all the different or the required clauses which yeah. make it essentially your insurance policy on work that you're doing as a result of this partnership? Yeah. Um, and so you now, okay, but now you want the business, right? So, so what I've done is yeah. I've said to my lawyers, I said, listen, can you just draft a three-page, just short thing just to make sure that the deal is going to take like yeah. four months to go through legal, yeah. but we can just get the deal and ultimately the partnership in play and actually in the business yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Because a lot of this stuff just takes so fucking long, right? So Legals can take forever, especially you, if you're dealing with corporates. How did yeah. you do it, bro? Like mm. you're, I mean, I've heard of like, I was, I was talking about IMG because we're very much in the talent space mm. now. Um, and IMG, um, one of my lawyer has actually seen one of their contracts and they're like a hundred pages long. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? No, it's insane. I it's mean, crazy. some of, some of ISOAs are also nuts and you have them when you need them. So it's, it's not like every single contract needs a, a strong, robust SLA. What I actually prefer is to try and make the legals as easily understandable as possible, which basically means that they need to be written technically not by a lawyer. It needs to have someone who's got a bit of a narrative to it. So it's, it's an easy read. Because what you want to do, whoever your key account person is, they need to read and understand because they're your advocate. They're the ones who say, cool, Matt, I want to do a deal with you. So let me go to legal and legal mustn't throw the book at me because I know exactly what the terms of references are in terms of how we're going to interact with you. So for me, the better framework for legal contracting, again, it has its place, so it doesn't always apply, is to have a, a very short framework. And it's a framework agreement that basically outlines who owns the customer, who owns the IP, payment terms, profit sharing terms, you know, those, those fundamentals. And then you have everything else in the in an annexure. Because an annexure allows you to also iterate it over time. And it allows you to not throw the book into the lawyer's court and say, you know, legal, all of us. It's to say, these are certain elements that are fundamental for us to get a foot in. Because I think the biggest point, and again, one of my big lessons was, you don't have to sell the whole ship. You can basically go into a customer and you must be able to leave with something, a deal. And a small deal become a big can become a bigger deal just through relationships. So as long as you can get your foot in and get the first contract signed, you're providing value. They're going to see your value, assuming you do provide value. 
right? Yeah, totally. And you, you can scale that from there. Dude, I love that because um, I was saying just before on air um, about scale and sometimes in order to scale, you actually have to do the things that don't scale. Yeah. It's almost like to start small and go, listen, guys, here's an executive summary. It literally says how, what you, how much, what you're paying for, what are the terms of service, the scope yeah. of work essentially, very executive summary type thing. But then here's the annexure, wherever that lives, and this can be a working thing that we can revisit and resign. And it, iterate, and then you just, yeah. as long as both of you sign, then you know you're safe. Yeah. You're still bound by the framework agreement. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, let's do the knockout punch. You can ring this bell, dude. <laughs> okay, dude. So what is your top tip for entrepreneurs when it comes to business? Something that any entrepreneur right now can apply in their business today that will make a positive difference to them. So it, it kind of will appeal to especially guys who are thinking about starting something then guys who have got something or I think it does cater for both is one you can start small, you know, for you to go from a paying job or no job to starting a business doesn't mean that you need to have an office staff. You don't need to have any of those luxuries. In fact, because all you really need is the the mindset to say that you are going to do this. You're committing to it and you're going to go out and try and sell customers on what you're trying to sell. Um, and as soon as you bank the first deal, it gives you confidence and you use that, you leverage it for the second deal. And you know, as long as you're constantly pursuing growth, I think starting small is the best way to to look at starting anything because you don't want to look down the rabbit hole of all the issues that come with being an entrepreneur. Otherwise, no one will get out of bed. I mean, you just want to curl up in a ball and 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 die. But yeah. if, <laughs> if, if, if if you literally said, okay, this is this is what I need to do tomorrow, and that's what you do tomorrow, and that tomorrow is going to get you to the next day, that's a perfect starting point. Uh-huh. And linked to that is start small and monitor your cash flow because just like what you were saying earlier, you know, even if you are small, your your cash flow is relative. You're chasing 500 bucks, you're chasing a thousand rand. Like that's important depending on what stage you are in your business. Um, and just because you get bigger doesn't mean your problems go away either. And that's kind of like the, the world that I'm living in now where I'm, I'm not big and I would say probably more small to medium. But as a business, you know, like the, the, the creditors, the, the customers you don't pay, the debtors, like all of those things grow relatively. So it's, it's not like you ever, you know, get away from that. It's just you need to manage your cash flow and, as long as you manage it closely, it doesn't mean that it always works out because you can plan for the nth degree and someone still lets you down. I've had, I've had a, a contingency plan with three sources of payments from customers, all three of them fall away. Then what? You know, like there's nothing I could have done. Yeah. I pestered them enough and I negotiate with them and, there's only so much you can do. But cash flow and start small, I think, are two fundamental things. The funny thing about cash flow is most people think that, or some entrepreneurs, I should say, quite a lot of them actually think that cash flow is only a thing that a small business has in terms of a problem. And that's totally untrue. Robbie Brosen started Nando's. He had like 38 stores, right? And he couldn't pay his staff. It's it literally mean? cash flow problem scale. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's it's all relative. Yeah, you will never not have a cash flow yeah. problem, yeah. <laughs> and, unless you literally have so much cash in the bank yeah. that you just you can ride those waves. But yeah. um, you know, like as as being more of a because you get two kinds of of startups now. You get the startups which are like more from a trading perspective, like you build your business based on cash flows, invoicing customers, and you get the the Silicon Valley startups, the guys who are raising oodles of cash by having a coffee table conversation. In fact, I was in, I was in um, San Francisco last year and it was just like a completely changed my perspective. Um, I'll, I'll get to that now. But the funny thing was like literally guys would get half a million dollars, a million dollars over, over a coffee table idea. Yeah, the million dollar coffee. It, it, it's insane. You know, like, and you can't contextualize that to what we live here. Mm. Um, 
the the contrast to that was when I went over there is they said South African entrepreneurs have got a great reputation. Everyone and we met a lot of people, and it's because we we have this ability to hustle. We make a plan, so you know we don't start like curling up into a ball when the go, when the going really does get tough, mm. and um, and we build fundamental strong businesses mm. um, because you, you you can be profitable and be a good business. Doesn't mean that you have to carry on chowing more investor money until you get pro- to profitability. Um, that all comes, but yeah, it's just you know I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this illusion that that's what entrepreneurship is, and that's really not what it is. Mm. Um, there there are some some other elements of entrepreneurship that Silicon Valley doesn't really portray. Which is the pain, essentially. I mean, I talk, I did a keynote just early, I think, when was it, Mav? Like Monday or Tuesday or something at FMB Conference Center. So I was doing a whole talk around, you know, change and how you can adapt and so forth. And one of the, the slides about how, why I started the Map Brown show was, was basically that these headlines, like on TechCrunch and stuff, is like, you know, um, Nestle funds $77 million in new startup called Freshly. You know, bike sharing battle heats up. Bike, bike sharing. I mean, that for me, I'm, I'm, I'm subscribed to a ticker. So every single night I get like the, the deal flow that happens over there. Uh-huh. And I mean, bike sharing is nuts. I saw a, a dog walking platform, which I think there's value in someone walking your dog, if, especially if you're busy. So but there is $25 million. <laughs> yeah, no, but this is exactly my point, dude. It's crazy. But this is nuts, bro. We're living in and you know, and and I'm not I'm not dissing them. I think the fact that if you can raise twenty five million dollars for Uber for pet sitters and dog yeah. walkers and stuff, then hats off to you and yeah. well fucking done. And I'll happily have you come on my show and we'll tell your story. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like le- legit. Like I think that's awesome. And but, I've got I've got many friends who've done that successfully, and yeah. that's the thing. It's just like, and those businesses do scale. There, there, you need lots of money to scale. But I think the more fundamental problem is not that they are getting the money; it's that the deal flow doesn't go to the guys who also could be eligible for money. I mean, one of my biggest gripes around that VC world is that there is hardly any liquidity for you to get access to good money for you to grow your business, what do especially you mean by that, in South Africa. <clears throat> yeah. So. This is totally true. So the V, that's what Benji could see us says from empty trips. She's been on my show a few times. And so basically she was saying the, ir- the ironic thing about South African venture capitalists is that they don't actually venture. Like it's, it's private equity. You know, like I spoke to Clive Butko last week, in fact, from Kalon Venture Partners and he was banging on about how two investments in his portfolio were just literally shooting the lights out. But he turned down, I'm probably not supposed to say this stuff, but, but let's just say that there was one company that was doing what I would regard as incredibly well and he binned them. Do you know what I mean? Like they're so ruthless. VC money like that. Listen, yeah. they're there for a 20, 30x return. Do you know what I'm saying? No, no, of course. So, so, but with going back to the headline thing, it's like it has its place, but if you're in South Africa, you don't have that opportunity. You, we don't have a three, 400 million consumer market, right? That's why if you're a startup, most startups here take SnapScan, for instance, when to, they go to corporates to die. Essentially, because if you want six million customers yeah, overnight, you need to go going to back to partnerships. Yeah. You go to Standard Bank, right, yeah. and you go and sell that IP to them, and off you go, right. You get a four-year earnout agreement, whatever the case might be, and then you go and start your next business, yeah. right? True or false? So the thing with those headlines, though, is that it doesn't paint the realities on the ground. Like they don't. It, it basically, it's like this: 
the impression is, the, perce the perception that those headlines create is that you'll start a business and then six months later you'll sell that business for $100 million. You'll move to the south of France on your $50 million super yacht and you'll be doing Bolivian cocaine with a bunch of Russian supermodels, <laughs> right? And congratulations because you know what? Next year you yeah. can do it all over again and buy a bigger yacht. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But like even, I mean, it's like for every one of those headlines, there are hundreds of thousands of crushed dreams. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. And even over there, you know, there's so many crush, crush dreams. It's timing, luck, someone needs to like you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's relentless. You know, by no means, someone raising $25 million would have been easy. They would have had 20 different pitch decks. The problem is, that the, or the opportunity for them was they have the audience mm -hmm. and they have the, the risk appetite that doesn't really exist here. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so, and it's, I mean, Jonathan Cotter was on my show. He was smashing cupcakes here the other day. But he was basically leaving in his car and he said to me, you know, um, entrepreneurship for him is actually about pain. That's what yeah. it's actually about. It's not about the sexy cars and yeah. the McLarens and all that shit. And it's, it's nice. It's to take the pain. Yeah, dude. And to, and to like push through that shit, mm. you know. And that's why I started the show was to basically, I mean, it's morphed into this massive other thing now. I'm trying to work out like what to do with it. But it's doing a lot of good because people are starting to get it, mm. you know. And I keep saying it's actually around like questions largely, you know. Yeah. I want to get into block starters now with you. But, but basically, if we're living in a world that's changing so much, like how do you remain ready? relevant and it's really about asking the right questions and so people always say to me oh but don't you like the notoriety or you know i'll get people saying geez your exposures it means like how do you like please can i come on your show and i'm like well sorry no like whatever there's reasons for that but for me it's about there's a there's listeners right now in 100 countries around the world and if i can inspire just one of them to start a business tech doesn't matter energy become the yeah, next tim yeah, olson yeah. like that for me stacks right because at least they get the the real information about what's happening on the ground and not the glorified version not the no. not, not the story of you know it's so easy and you're going to make a killing you're going to raise tons of money it's about like the hard grind that you need to go through and all the up the ups and the downs that you need to take to actually persevere yeah the failed marriages the fact that you can't relate to your kids that you miss recitals sports games and stuff like that because it is an all-consuming thing to make it you really do need to sacrifice far more than just capital it's your happiness in many instances right it's your time it's your relationships like and even then there's no guarantee that you'll make it yeah exactly you there's never any guarantee that's yeah. the there's no safety net yeah, not at all. What, man? Just, just the just the floor. You give can him, just see the floor. Some, have, you, have you given him some uh, volume there? Okay. Put Mav's mic on, Shane. He's just chuckling in the background. <laughs> this, um, what do you want, Mav? Bronte says that you seem like the Iron Man of South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Where is he? He's on YouTube. Yes, how's it, Bronte? How are you doing, That's bud? That's so, yeah, so look, um, I think what I want to do is get into the Injustice League. So this I'm super excited about. We're going to take the Injustice League to the next level today. So, Tim, um, while the guys are going to get set up for you swinging this baseball bat, um, what is the one injustice that you see in the world? Like, what is that thing that you're going to take your frustration out on today? So it's obviously very close to what I do in the world that I live in, which is around energy. Um, we are currently doing a whole bunch of things around the network because basically the network hasn't changed in the last hundred years since electricity was invented. It's very archaic. It's very centralized. There are a lot of changes and blockchain is a great technology that kind of disrupts that sort of incumbent system that we all kind of accept at this stage. But really in Africa, you know, we got over 600 million people who don't have access to electricity. 
and As in no electricity. No electricity. So and they in the dark, they literally live in the dark. The irony is that they would walk five, ten kilometers a day to charge their cell phone because all of these users have cell phones. Uh, uh, so Africa is one of, one of the highest cell phone penetrations in the world. But if you think about them, those guys are also unbanked. They don't even have bank accounts. Mm. They're dealing cash. And that's why things like um, M-Pesa, which is mobile money in like East Africa, really took off because it kind of empowered them to start transacting without having to worry about where am I getting the cash from? You know, it's just USSD over to another phone. But you have all of these people who basically don't have access. And if they don't have access, they're using kerosene lights which you know, isn't healthy for their kids studying. Fire hazard. Fire hazards. And also the fumes. I mean, it has huge health implications. Um, but then you also think about what electricity is. Electricity is almost in a way, it should be a human right because without electricity, you actually, you're nowhere. You're not connected. You're not connected to the rest of the world and internet kind of like changed the view on globalization, right? Mm. In fact, I watched a TED talk back like in 2009 and was um, Sergey Brin from from um, Google, mm-hmm. and literally they they had they, they simulated the globe. So like it was like awesome animation around all the all the Google traffic. Like you could see like you know pinging from San Francisco to like uh, Germany and then Germany to Johannesburg. But then there was like then they like dialed the, the globe towards Africa. Oh, dude, I've seen that and it's yeah. black and it's black. And yeah, he yeah. says this is what we want to focus on mm. because. The reason why it's black is because there's no access to electricity, no reliable access to electricity. I mean, lots of places also still have diesel, but that's expensive. So guys are running tiny generators. But they said they want to focus on that because as soon as you get some electricity, you're empowering them, literally. Mm. They're suddenly going to get connected to the internet. They're suddenly going to have this wealth of information that all of, all of us take for granted. And kind of cha- starts potentially changing that society entirely going forward. Yeah. So two things. One, I think universal basic income should also be a, a human yeah, right. Huge, yeah, that absolutely. Should be access yeah. to energy. And the third thing there is around um, mobile phones and drinking water. You know, in, in Africa, there are more people with access or ownership of phones and they have access to uh, clean drinking water. That's fucking sad. That's a scary statistic. In 2018, yeah. dude. No, it's, it's crazy. It's nuts. Yeah. Bro. That's why people don't understand like Silicon Valley versus Africa. You no, can't no, you can't. Them, bro. You can't. Yeah. Cool. So let's get on with it. <laughs> okay. So, dude, you can drop your mic there for me. Just on the floor. Uh, just on the table, please. Oh, that's also fine. I'm going to get out the way. So um, just hold on. I'm going to put this, um, this here light bulb in this safety, uh, safety net because we're all about health and safety. Um, okay. So, dude, um, you're going to swing this baseball bat. The bulb is around about there, yeah? And as you do that, I want you to just take your frustration out on the injustice of human beings not having access to affordable energy. Go for it, dude. <laughs> oh, that was legit, dude. In fact, were you like a sportsman in another life, right? I was practicing. Yeah. I'm responsible for mass sales of baseballs in South Africa <laughs> and baseball bats. And no light bulbs. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, dude. Thanks for that. You know, for most of us, time is what we want most, but what we use worst. So why not let digital kung fu make the most of your time by letting us market you, the brand behind the brand. Check out digitalkungfu.co.za to get your hands on our curated content packages specifically for busy entrepreneurs. So um, let's talk about block starters, dude. So cool. blockchain and energy, this is 
uber, uber excited or exciting yeah. rather. Yeah. Decentralization of centralized parastatals yeah. and having a young South African guy with network and experience to go and do that thing is probably a really awesome story to explore with you. So um, block starters, what is it? What's your vision around it? It's basically a bunch of guys in a room. <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing there, dude? You can't sell it like that. What are they doing over there? <laughs> um, no, so I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a bit of a, a background. So I'm not going to make this make this too long. So in our in our energy business, we've really struggled to find quality developers. Most of them do live in Cape Town, so like there is you know obviously good resources there. But in Joburg, they all get bought by the big corporates, so they get massive paychecks, and like makes it very hard for a startup and a small business to really compete and lure them into another environment because they just get comfortable. So my partner, Dan and I, and actually we also should be talking about partnerships, uh, really had this idea a couple of years ago to say, why don't we do an incubator? Why don't we just get a couple of guys, like set up a space, a cool space for guys to basically sit, make it a tech incubator, incubator and we get guys to actually come sit there. So they, we welcome their startups into the space and we can help them. I mean, not that, I'm, like I said, I'm still learning. I'm going to continue to learn. I'm still making tons of mistakes in our business and my entrepreneurial journey. But why don't we just give them some support? Like, how do you do your legals? Like agreements, right? Where do you even go? How much do you have to pay? Sometimes you can actually, you know, kind of subsidized costs because you really have had some form of framework. So we just thought if we can lure them in with that kind of notion, we could maybe attract some interesting talent, guys who love entrepreneurship, guys who like being in the startup space. So that's really where it came from. And then when the whole um, blockchain boom or crypto boom happened last year, we thought, why don't we just make it blockchain specific? So it's not capitalizing on the, the current gold rush around trading crypto. So I'm not going to give any trading advice here whatsoever. <laughs> Um, no, but it's about listening, dude. <laughs> <laughs> crickets. Um, it's it's about the technology itself and what that technology can do across industry, mm -hmm. um, because literally it has so many use cases. It also has so many non-use cases. A lot of people suddenly like popped up as a startup say, "We are on blockchain and we do this." And you go, "Does it really have a use case for blockchain? Is it worth it?" So those are always the questions that you need to ask. But basically, what we want to do around block starters, which is our co-working space and blockchain incubator is to try and get people who are in the space, who buy into the movement of what blockchain is, into the same environment. So we can collaborate, we can share ideas, we can share talent, we can solve problems. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you are in consumer services and energy, uh, financial services, whatever the industry application is, you're still dealing with the fundamental foundation of blockchain is the technology mm. and there's still so much around blockchain that is not understood mm. there's still there's still so much growth that needs to happen you know in terms of scalability um and all of these things kind of like make it a very early stage community that we just want to capitalize on and just bring guys close to us see how we can assist them if we can um, a lot of the guys know what they're doing which is great but really just make it a home and be known for home for for blockchain startups Okay, so uh, I've been there. I've met quite a few of the guys. It's been really rad. Um, and obviously, we've been courting around this thing called Block Week, which would be essentially the... Because I believe like that... I totally agree with you. I think it's very embryonic. I think there was a lot of um, narrative that drove, obviously, thanks to the Bitcoin price, and a lot of people lost a lot of money. <laughs> ton of money. Yeah. No one's talking about that shit. That's yeah. what Clive was actually saying to me now. He was like, dude, everyone's talking about AI, man, and um, you know, and robotics and stuff yeah. like that. Like Also exponential technologies, but yeah. the steam out of crypto is gone. 
And that's okay so for it's, now. It's the speculation behind yeah, it, right? That's, but that was a big, I never exactly. liked that. You know, I mean, I know I covered it with Rand and so forth from Crypto Trader, but it was relevant at the time because people yeah. were just putting, they were like mortgaging, taking out second fucking mortgages on their homes and stuff and credit cards just to go in the next gold rush, you know. Um, and so, I mean, I've, there was one guy I spoke to, and he literally liquidated his two kids college funds to put it into Ooh. bitcoin i mean like it was bad yeah. so i'm having lunch with these guys and, and so forth and i'm like no man and that's why i did it because it was yeah. all around helping you know yeah, people it's, who, it's, it's the educational part that's it man yeah, it's, you want to tell people because people are interested but i think now the education especially on the trading side is more cautionary mm. regulation is is what you're investing in actually a credible platform and idea and it's so difficult to do a valuation on it because it's just you the, the four of us could now just suddenly come up with a great idea and put up a nice website right i mean that's what the market was it's not that anymore this year yeah icos uh, exactly so and yeah. those that was the you know the pump mm. a lot of that yeah i mean reverse icos now and inside out icos and <laughs> actually please tell me about your inside out ICO. <laughs> So it was just me being a dick because uh, I call bullshit on if I yeah, see stuff yeah, and I'm like, this is such fucking marketing. It's like the cloud. It's just a computer data. somewhere yeah. else. No, of course. It's yeah. not actually in the sky. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. But people believe that shit. It's yeah. like, oh, where's your cloud, my bro? No, it's, it's in like North Equator. I think it's 33 degrees north, 17 minutes yeah. south, and it's moving west. You know, no, it's just a computer on the fucking internet. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so, um, anyway, so just going back to, to blockchain and so forth, like energy though, very interesting, right? So, you know, I have this incubator and uh, I kind of got, sort of sidetracked distracted but we're talking about block week because i think there's a huge play for media i think there's yeah, coin education yeah nick Haralambis is playing there um but but yeah i don't think anyone's really taking that by the horn yet having said that no one's really taking energy by the horn either right so yeah. they are players of i know course, but yeah. who's actually sure. the, yeah who's that guy right so let's talk about Aldo. Like I know, I don't know. I know your business quite well because we're talking about doing some stuff together. But could you share with us what you can around the token economy and how you potentially see or don't see affordable energy being enabled through decentralization um, from a company like Aldo? What does that look like? Sure. So. I'm going to speak in an African context and then I'm going to speak Please. in terms of like the, the global industry. Yeah. So just like I said earlier, access to electricity isn't there because there's no infrastructure, right? So for a equivalent of an ESCOM in DRC or in Ethiopia to run power lines that go kilometers and it costs like $100,000 per K to put up power lines, it just doesn't become economically viable to connect a thousand village homes. So it's kind of like you, you're always dead in the water. So this whole notion of a centralized network is changing in our utility infrastructure. It's not about I produce power here, I distribute it, and here's my customer. It's like you could have a customer over there that is so far away from your power source that you will never be able to commercially um, viably supply him with electricity. So what do you do? You build the power there. And you build it for based on what he needs. You don't need to build it for what the entire network needs. Mm. So we're moving away from the central system, and it's it's effectively called embedded generation. It's It's – Industry understood. It's it's nothing, you know, groundbreaking really. But where I think this the whole blockchain element in in terms of the infrastructure becomes very very interesting. And this is one of the things that we're looking at doing is how we can 
change the ownership of utility infrastructure in Africa. Because everything is parastatal owned, so everything is a monopoly. If they are inefficient and they're not able to collect money from their customers, become kind of becomes like a death spiral. In fact, it's it's a known term. It's called the utility death spiral. So it's an actual thing. It's an actual thing. And for centralized utilities, right? For African utilities. Oh, for African. Yeah. So that's it, where ESCOM is, right? Yeah. Or do you think that ESCOM is the largest, but you know their problem kind of persists even with the smaller guys in other African you mean countries. Municipalities yeah. or municipalities got other. Other problems, but their death spiral. Everywhere you turn, it's a nightmare. (laughs) But for you to solve the problem, you need a lot of money. It's an infrastructure play. Mm. So one of the things that we're ideating is how we can crowdfund infrastructure. Um, We don't do it using a utility token, ironically. Uh, It would become more of a security itself um, to actually enable the rollout and the management of the infrastructure properly using software, using IoT-type technology, which is really... I'm using a buzzword, so I don't like using it, but kind of I think we'll give an illustration because what we effectively do in our core business is metering. It's collecting data from different meters across the entire network and try and A, collect from the customer accurately, but B, also monitor what's happening in that network so that you can effectively manage what you are measuring because without the data, you you are dead in the water. So well, how we, do you know what to charge? Yeah, exactly. How do you know where your losses are? How do you know where yeah. your theft is occurring? Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the, the bizarre things. Like our networks are so complicated and they kind of underpin everything that we run. Our homes, our businesses, entire economies are run off this infrastructure. Mm. But access to data is, is a big problem. Yeah. Well, if you take IoT because it's a rad buzzword. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've never big data, actually, IoT. Yeah. <laughs> I've never actually used that on the show, IoT, before. Jeez, I must catch up, eh? <laughs> but, um, like, take Vodacom, right? Our calls keep dropping. This is South Africa's best network. And then they send you that stupid SMS that goes... Um, oh, we've noticed that you've had some dropped calls, bro. Um, here's 10 minutes and it expires in 24 hours. Yeah. It's like, fuck you, bro. I pay you like three, four grand a month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I can't yeah. even run my yeah. business. And you they, know? Won't, they won't even give you an SLA. No, dude. Yeah. And it's so, completely, you just, you're disempowered. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, but anyway, so if you think about the fact that phone calls, just phone calls are, in, are like a thing that can't, isn't exactly, you know, 100% delivered all the time. Yep. yep then they need a new network to deal with things like in the Internet of Things and connected homes and smart devices. And exactly. Your fucking belt's talking to your watch and your watch is talking yep. to your, wa- your glasses and your glasses are talking to your fridge. <laughs> and, you know, like that's a shitload of data, right? Yep. So, um, but well, it's, it's actually really small data and that's the thing. Because it's the volume. Though, it's right? the volume yeah. and the transaction cost. Yep. Because having a SIM card on a phone that streams YouTube – Right is using a ton of data. Having a small sensor either on your on your wrist or at your door, that's kilobits of data mm. over a month. Mm. So you can't charge the same rates that they would be charging now. So this is one of the things like it cannot be done using existing infrastructure. So communication infrastructure, energy, all of those things are inherently linked because they actually are converging. Mm. So that's that's the big thing for us. We we effectively are coining ourselves a smart grid network operator. It's kind of taking these elements of our legacy infrastructure underpinned with smart devices that allows us to communicate in close to real time as possible with reliable communication infrastructure and we bought on consumer services on top. So it's 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 a mouthful. Yeah. No, I got um, all of that. Did you get that? <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? Um but I almost think about our existing networks having this software layer on top and you can decide who you transact with. Mm. So if you suddenly put PV on your roof, you want to sell it to your neighbor, you should be allowed to do that. Regulation mm. is a big 
barrier to enable that kind of business model, but you know things will change. Mm. But there also are more more fundamental things that our networks are becoming more transactional. Yeah. So, so it's just a matter of time. Yeah. No, I totally agree. But look, I mean, when you've got rolling blackouts, you know, during winter, and you've got um, a baby, right, and she's freezing her ass off, and she's two weeks old, and your wife's in your ear about <laughs> ESCOM and stuff like that, and you, you know, what I mean, like that's kind of the thing that, like, if, if Aldo X or insert company came and went, you know, knock, knock, knock. We've got this thing and you can choose now who you get your electricity from. And because quite frankly, dude, I don't give a flying fuck where it comes from. I just want to have my power. You just want to have, and also you want to, you want to trust your utility provider that they provide you their service and that they build you properly. But then they misappropriate 6.5 billion. Mm. Explain that to me. You can't explain that. That's 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 the problem, right? So then, it's how so, do you so, change it? Because you're basically what you're. And I'm I'm getting animated yeah. now, so I apologize. No, actually, I don't. Um, <laughs> but but like you're fighting a system that's been in place for God knows when, dude. Like, hundred percent. How do you change it, bro? You've got corrupt officials at the yeah. top. Like, it's a system that. By all accounts, you will never change, right? It's highly, highly, highly unlikely. You almost need to just say, okay, that was is the way that it is, yeah. and we're going to pitch up with this new thing, and hey, you know what? If it's that much of a pain point for you as the consumer, like, choose us. We can. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, by the way, if it is securities tokens or what have you, and you do have some form of managing, measuring the data, et cetera, et cetera, and you can deliver a proof of concept service and it starts to fly, like, do you even need regulation? Think about, I mean, I don't know. Like, where does the buck stop between traditional infrastructure, even though you're you're solving a traditional problem? The way that you're suggesting that you're going to solve it will be completely different. It will be like, technology or digital right so or digital technology blockchain token securities etc whatever right all consumers language consumers will never understand but for you do you really care about regulation because quite frankly i imagine that there's a shitload of consumers in south africa right now who don't care about regulation they don't care because they're fed up but the problem is for service providers like us we we are bound by the regulation so are you though you are because (laughs) Literally, like literally, have you, have you gone down we've, we've had solar PV systems on businesses and homeowners' roofs that we had to throttle. So it's a technical term where you basically look at how much is being generated, how much you're consuming, and how much do we need to almost like kill so that you are losing power because you don't want to push back into the network so you can sell the power to your neighbor. Or even your neighbor would get it for free. Eskom would be getting free, and then municipality would be getting free electricity. So that gives you like an idea of how... Um, bizarre the regulation is and it is changing but it needs a national change um so right now the biggest focus for us and it goes back to you know why are we having blackouts right it's because they are not maintaining the infrastructure and it's because they're not able to collect from their customers in escom's case it's the municipalities they were escom 30 billion the number changes but let's say 30 billion right well who knows do you know how much the, what do you know, they spend uh, today yeah. <laughs> do you know how much the the customers own the municipalities uh-uh. Over 100 billion. <laughs> so this problem just gets kicked down the road mm. and it does stop at the consumer. So the, the first thing that, that we want to do and we're currently doing is helping them collect. Help them collect their money so that they start improving service delivery and they can start upgrading the networks and they turn themselves around. Because you know that debt spiral is talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the floor. They're already on the floor. Like this is no longer like 2005 where, you know, energy supply was a problem Mm. this is now a revenue crisis people are not collecting and as a result of that they're not able to operate their networks i don't get it man i just get very scared 
it's, it's a massive problem. It's a massive yeah, like, infrastructure problem. You know, like in Joburg, your economic heartbeat of the country that doesn't have power. I mean, really? Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. What future is yeah, there? of course. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, and it scares people, dude. Like, especially entrepreneurs, man, when they've got a bit of cash. And I mean, like I'm looking at Brad and Mav and I'm thinking about their futures. You know what I'm saying? The younglings. Yeah, dude, the youngsters, bro. And like, they, they're going to inherit this thing, you know? And I don't know. I think energy in South Africa and more broadly Africa needs someone a la Elon Musk cuts out of that same threshold where he's prepared to risk everything to redefine entire industries like what Elon's done with cars and, and solar power and space travel and so forth. Do you know what I'm saying? You yeah. need that here because if you're not that guy, like there is no chance. Yeah, no, it's look, it's a massive problem and you've got many, many battles to fight. Our business model is very unique. It also, it's an evolution. It's something that happens over a period of time because it's not a switch. It's, it's a massively intensive capital um, element and actually needs a lot of money. So the irony is, you know, the, the business that I have now is, is sustainable. We've got customers if they pay, when they pay. <laughs> <laughs> I have customers who also don't pay me. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we are in the process of raising money and we'll probably continue to raise a lot more money. Mm. Um, How much are you raising? No. We, we need between 500 to a billion rand over the next, I'd say, year. And how far down that garden path are you kicking that can? Close, and we're doing it iteratively um, because also for you to be able to recruit the projects, you don't do them in a big bang. You, you basically are doing mass rollouts across a whole bunch of different places. So it is an iterative structure, but yes, you know we've got pipeline. We know where the customers are. We know where the business cases are. And we're putting them into a funding pipeline. Sweet, dude. Should we do your Q&A? Mav, what's happening on the live stream there, bud? Uh, Shriya asks, does switching off your geezer really help? It does. Um, your, your, your water... <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't help Tim. Yeah, it doesn't help me. In fact, <laughs> everyone should dial up the geezers so that Eskom burns more. <laughs> um, no, Don't tell anyone. Yeah, It, it does help, um, but your geezer basically has a routine where it fires up the element and that's when your usage picks up again. Um, a heat pump is obviously far more efficient. So there's not much you can get out of an existing geezer. It's, it is a, without getting too technical, it's resistive, which means that it basically runs current through the steel rod and that creates heat. So it's a very inefficient way of using energy. But yes, it does, slightly. <laughs> Ronaldo asks, does SA have the infrastructure to support self-driving cars? No. <laughs> not Next yet. question. <laughs> not yet. But that's devastating for for me because, like, if or if and when I move to the states, uh, which, by the way, everyone, I've, sorry, I'm gonna just jump in this one thing here. So, Brain Spitty put this tweet out yesterday, and he's like, every conversation he's had in the last two weeks has been about, and he coaches entrepreneurs, right, the heartbeat of the country, sort of thing, economically. And he was saying like every single conversations involved immigration, every yeah. single one. Indeed. It's a it's a hot topic for for a number of reasons now. So I'd be devastated, right, if I was forced to stay in South Africa and I couldn't get a Tesla, like a Model Three. You know what I'm saying? Like just to have it and put push fucking ludicrous mode and put my foot down. <laughs> You know I, mean? I don't yeah. care about the yeah. puddles, dude. I just want the yeah. power, dude. Well, well, that's another thing. We actually need charging stations everywhere. You need electric highways. Because look, the funny thing is um, when Nissan launched the Leaf, I mean, that's the least sexy EV car that you can get. Death trap hashtag. Yeah, exactly. Three years, they sold, within three years, they sold the same number of cars that BMW sold within the first month of releasing the i3. 
It's nuts, eh? Yeah, it's crazy. And the price, it's because the, the Nissan was a lot more expensive, or actually was slightly cheaper than the i3, but the BMW just had so much more appeal, brand appeal. So it shows you the, the power of the brand. But we need infrastructure first. We need charging stations. You want to go to a mall, you don't want to have to like stress about, am I going to get home? Because if I get stuck, I really get stuck, right? Mm-hmm. And we've got to remember, Tesla's not a hybrid. Tesla's a Pure. electric vehicle yeah. only. That's yeah. it. You plug in and that's it. Um, what do you think I8 owners um, <laughs> keep? What do you think keeps them up at night? Is it the fact that they can only go short distances or... Because, I mean, the what muscle, is the range on that? I think it's the, the depreciation on their car that keeps them up at night. What does that cost, that I8? You'll know, roughly. Yeah, 1.8, but you drive it off the floor and you get 1.2. Okay, well, like most new cars, right? I suppose. Okay, next one. Um, while we're on the subject of cars, can we go on a spin with them? <laughs> 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 I'll let you guys go, for sure. Yeah. Okay, um, Ashton asks, how did you and the co-founders get to the concept of block starters? It literally was a coffee table idea where we said, we've got the space, why don't we use it? Why don't we try and make it a friendly space for blockchain startups to come and meet? So it's not fintech, you know, it's like blockchain as a whole. Um, and we try and get some stability into this whole industry that's emerging, like stability and credibility. Uh, and the biggest um, boon for me in my experience at Blockstarters was that the concept is so novel and so friendly that allows you to have a whole bunch of different conversations that you wouldn't have been able to have so you meet with the regulators you meet with the banks you can meet with the law firms and you're not selling your business to them saying this is this is an ecosystem we want you to be associated so that you get some benefit but the startups also get benefit and it allows us all collectively to actually help the industry and shape the industry and hopefully also shape regulation awesome um his follow-up question is how has the journey been so far in block specifically um, crazy. Um, the, the, the feedback we've been getting has been really awesome. Everyone loves it. Um, we've got some really cool startups who've joined our, joined up, um, course and we're hoping to grow the model. So that's, we realize that this is a great model for South Africa, but we're also looking at how we can potentially expand it. Um, because that's really where you can make a, a bigger difference. Um, but yeah, we, Really awesome experience. Met amazing bunch of entrepreneurs. For me, the the really cool thing is that being an entrepreneur and being stuck in my business, and then being exposed to the startup businesses and block starters, kind of gives you some good exposure too. Yeah, really, really exciting time, and definitely look into blockchain as a technology if if you haven't done already. Why do you do what you do? Like, what gets Tim Olsen out of bed in the morning? It's do you know, like the, what people often will say is that they'll do it because they just like want to make a difference. And like, yeah, you know, that, that's important. But I, I love the, the journey and I love the ability to do something that is difficult to do and like getting to that milestone or working through multiple milestones to get to that final milestone. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the challenge. I mean, if you're not in it for the journey, you, you're going you're gonna to struggle through that pain. You're not going to make it. Trust the process. Exactly. Tim, dude, awesome chat, bro. Awesome. Fucking immense, bro. That was rad. Yeah. Very cool. Great show. Thanks, um, and wishing you, Aldo, and um, yeah, mate, Blockstarters, all the very best. Eh? It's super exciting to see what you do, and hopefully you can fix all of our roading blackout problems eh, at some point. Hopefully. Guys, thanks for checking in on the live stream. Uh, always great to have you guys participate. So this is the Matt Brown, and I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks for checking out the Map Round Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za.
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.